Hello, hello, and welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, John Latiri, and I'm very pleased you found the new show. Quick note about myself. In my day job, I'm the co-founder and head of the Economic Innovation Group, a bipartisan research and policy organization based in Washington, D.C. I've spent my career in public policy, and my passion is understanding the things that make people and places thrive. In a nutshell, that's what this podcast is all about. This show will feature long-form conversations with some of the country's most influential experts, economists, journalists, and business leaders. Together, we'll explore the trends and issues shaping our economy and society today with guests from across the political spectrum, all with a special focus on how better public policy can help us build a more dynamic economy, one in which more people and places have a chance to truly thrive. In this inaugural episode of The Deep Dive, I sit down for a wide-ranging discussion with Scott Winship, one of the country's leading experts on economic mobility and inequality. Scott currently serves as Executive Director of the Congressional Joint Economic Committee, or JEC. At JEC, he leads the Social Capital Project for the committee's chairman, Senator Mike Lee of Utah. Through that project, Scott and his team have turned JEC into one of the most important think tanks in the country. Let's just say that's unusual for a congressional committee. Scott previously worked at the Manhattan Institute, the Brookings Institution, and the Pew Charitable Trusts, among others. Scott and I discussed the latest research on social capital. What is it, and why does it need its own project? We examine the persistence of the opportunity gap between black and white children, and we discuss the many ways in which a person's zip code exerts a profound influence over his or her odds of success in achieving the American dream. We also get Scott's take on the rise of so-called national conservatism and what it means for economic policymaking. Now, I should note, this conversation was recorded a few months ago, before the onset of COVID-19 and the economic crisis. So in that sense, it's a bit of a time capsule. You won't hear us talking about skyrocketing unemployment, mass business closures, or our preferred style of face mask. But the issues we discuss here are timely and relevant nonetheless, and they are ones that have been at play in our economy and society for decades. So I'm thrilled to have Scott as my first guest, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Lastly, if you like what we're doing here, I have a small favor to ask. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Doing so will be a big boost to the new show. And with that, on to the episode. Scott Winship, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, John. Scott, before we dive in, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the business you're in? Well, I uh, was born and raised in Maine, um, working class town there. Uh, went to school in Chicago. And then uh, my freshman year of college, the LA riots happened. And uh, that ended up shifting me from what I thought was going to be a great career in biomedical engineering um, into what's turned into social science and policy. Um, spent a few years in the Midwest after that. Uh, worked for Acorn. As I guess technically that was my first post-collegiate job organizing uh, low-income communities. Which is exactly what anyone would expect for a, a reformed conservative working on social capital, right? Exactly. I, I will say it was a, a it proved to be a very bad fit and uh, didn't last three or four months. That should have been an early sign that my trajectory might be might be headed a, a direction different than what I thought. Went to grad school in Boston, became ABD, uh, and came to DC. So that was yeah, 2005. And from there, sort of worked on my dissertation, but then got involved in all sorts of other things. I was very much a, a moderate Democrat at the time. And so I started up an online magazine called The Democratic Strategist. Met a bunch of really important people in the center-left world uh, that led to a think tank job at Third Way. From there, I went to the Pew Charitable Trusts and uh, worked on the Economic Mobility Project there, then to Br the Brookings Institution, 
And, and then from there, things started to take a turn in terms of the, the crowds that I was interacting with as, as my research became increasingly conservative friendly and not, not, as, not as welcome to liberals, ended up at the Manhattan Institute. And I was there for three and a half years, got the opportunity to take this position uh, on the Social Capital Project, uh, working for Senator Mike Lee uh, in the Joint Economic Committee. That's where I remain today. And it's a good, good time for me to say that, that uh, the views that I express here do not uh, by any stretch reflect uh, the views of the senator or, or the Joint Economic Committee or any elected official. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a disclaimer. Uh, to talk about how you made that journey. I mean, what, what influenced the, the move? Because you, you didn't, I don't, I don't, having followed your work for a while and, and seen a lot of your work previous to even getting to know you, it's not like you've made a wild shift uh, ideologically, mm. at least not, not an obviously wild one. Yep. But you have moved. And you've described previously that things you started off skeptical about, you've been convinced that your original priors were wrong and, and you've updated them accordingly. So what was it that helped spark that change? I used to be quite lefty. Uh, I, I hunger struck in college for, I don't know, five days or something ridiculous like that for, uh, of all causes, uh, Asian American studies, which at the time seemed like an appropriate strategy. Uh, uh, Were you successful? I, I eventually ate, which I'm happy about. And uh, eventually there, there was Asian American studies, although it, it was a little ridiculous. They were, it was working its way through the bureaucratic process. And of course, that was not fast enough for, for a us. young radical. Exactly. Yeah. And then took the acorn job, which was, you know, five bucks an hour, was encouraged to just not pay back my student loans and continue working uh, on the job, um, which I was not willing to do. So I, I used to be quite, quite lefty. I, I think my saving grace was that I, in college, I, I began working under Professor uh, Christopher Jenks, who I then became my advisor in grad school later on. And he's just one of these people who, you know, his, his sort of priors are center left, but he ultimately looks at questions that are empirical questions and sees what the data has to say about it and then changes his, his views accordingly. And he was so consistent at that and, and, and so consistently challenging of some of my presumptions that uh, as I started to kind of try to model myself after him in a lot of ways, you know, facts just don't always conform to the way you think the world is. And so I, so I became moderate, more moderate over time uh, as I became more familiar with, with, with some facts that we can talk about later about trends in living standards and, and, and things like that. Being in a, in a graduate sociology program probably pushed me a little bit more rightward as well. Although even even when I came to DC, I was I was still very comfortably kind of a Clinton New Democrat. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess what sort of the the sort of ultimate thing that that moved me from center left to center right, I'll, as you say, I, I don't feel like it was a giant leap, but was I, I think I began to feel in the mid two thousands that this democratic narrative of the middle class basically being in the same boat as the poor and we're all just one bad break away from catastrophe and therefore we need universal programs and and social insurance for everything elizabeth warren's the two income trap you know that came out uh, right about then that that rising inequality was the root of all evil that the the health insurance problem was so big that we needed to completely upend the healthcare system that we had i was kind of moving away from from liberals on on all that stuff and in 2012, I uh, ended up challenging some work that President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors had done on the relationship between inequality and economic mobility, Great Gatsby Curve. And that 
almost overnight lost me the remaining liberal friends that I had and won me some new conservative fans. And that's kind of what did that report fundamentally get wrong? So the Great Gatsby curve was basically a, a chart. It wasn't misleadingly, it was not a curve. It was a straight line, but it essentially showed the relationship between income inequality on the one hand and economic mobility on the other hand across a bunch of different countries. And so it turns out the countries that have more inequality have less economic mobility. And the the CEA was sort of using this chart to then say, okay, we have this relationship. Let's say that it's a causal relationship. Inequality is growing in the United States, and so it's going to reduce opportunity. And I knew that was just contrary to all the evidence on economic mobility trends, um, which which haven't changed all that much. We can come back to the the Chetty finding about absolute mobility, but if you're if you're just talking about moving moving up and down in ranks, there's you know, a, a literature of 10 or 12 papers showing that it just hasn't changed that much over time. And so I kind of called them out on it. But it was a really politically important argument to, to the Obama administration at the time who was running, president was running for re-election against Mitt Romney, the, the plutocrat from Bain Capital. And, and so they really, really wanted to make this argument. And, and it just wasn't a good one in my book. So around that time, also, the reform conservatives were, uh, were becoming a thing. I didn't really know many of them at the time. Yuval Levin had reached out to me to write something for National Affairs, and so I got to know him a little bit. Raihan Salam, when he was at National Review, had been recruiting me to write some stuff for them, and just just was sort of embraced and adopted in some ways by by the Reform Conservatives, and found it a very comfortable place. It took me a little while to adjust. I, I, I had a piece on the cover of National Review in 2011 that I was deeply uncomfortable with. <laughs> <laughs> Telling my parents I was on National Review, and and so it was a little bit of a of an adjustment for me. But really, the more people that I met in the center right world, you know, we just felt completely comfortable in the Reform Conservative. I believe you're in that famous photo spread of <laughs> Reform right. Conservatives. Still one of my favorite policy wonk pictures of all time. Gazing longingly at Adam White. What were you looking at? You're Adam White. I, I was trying not to look at Adam White, but but, it's but hard essentially, to yeah, for half an hour we had to basically gaze into each other's eyes. A lot of I think what underpins your journey ideologically is a sense of greater optimism about the state of affairs than what a lot of the prevailing narrative would seem to suggest. So I want to start there really in terms of diving in. Let me see if I can do justice to the prevailing narratives. <laughs> Inequality is skyrocketing. Upward mobility has collapsed. Robots are stealing our jobs. Deaths of despair and loneliness are reaching epidemic levels. Geographic inequality is on the rise. We've shipped millions of jobs overseas to China. Wages have been stagnant or declining for decades. Capitalism is clearly broken. What did I get wrong in all that? <laughs> Nothing. I think it's all absolutely all right. We should all just essentially start stockpiling our canned goods and head for our shelters. If you're just starting now, it's too late. It, it, yeah, it actually is. It, it's far too late at this point. For a variety of reasons, I think they're all of the incentives in some ways in the think tank world, the, the sort of public intellectual world, the public square really are to highlight, you know, the worst possible aspects of, of our economic life and our social life. If you're a journalist, you know, no, nobody wants to read like things are a little better, or a little worse than last year. If you're a, a funder, you're looking for impactful projects. If you're a think tanker, you're looking for, for something dramatic um, that's going to that's going to catch people's attention. So uh, if you're a journalist or, or or an academic, you're trying to make the world a, bit, a better place and and so you're focused on all the things that are wrong and trying to draw attention to them. But when you actually look at a, lo a lot of the facts, they just don't stand up to scrutiny. So 
Inequality has certainly risen. I, I think there's a lot of debate about how much it's risen. Uh, the Piketty and Saez stuff has pretty consistently overstated the rise in, in income concentration at the top. So there's definitely been a rise, but not necessarily a large one. The economic mobility narratives are just are sort of all over the place. As I mentioned, there's just this big literature showing that relative mobility, changing ranks over time, if you start in the bottom, can you make it out of the bottom? If you start in the middle, default to the bottom. That that just hasn't changed one way or another in 50 years or so. Middle class living standards, median wages for men and women are at an all-time high, for instance. Uh, median household income is at an all-time high. Poverty is at an all-time low. Even things like male labor force participation, which a lot of people point to and to argue that the economy is just failing all of these guys who no longer can find work because they don't have college degrees. Even something like that, which has been occurring since roughly the 1930s, as far as I can tell, it mostly involves men who either say they're disabled, which runs counter to most of the evidence that health is actually increasing over time or improving over time, not, not worsening. And to the extent that it's not an increase in men who say they're disabled, it's an increase in men who say they don't want a job. What are those guys doing? Hard to say, but the presumption is that these are guys that have just dropped out of the workforce because they can't find work. It's the video um, games. And the video games, for sure. I've just found pretty consistently, even where I would argue there, there might be some problems, that they are just consistently overstated to the point of highlighting just how, just how bad things are. And, and we've really lost track of the fact that we're living in the richest economy and society in, in world history in some ways. And even to the extent that the trends are bad, a lot of times they, they were bad in the 1980s, for instance. Male wages had a very bad decade in the 1980s. That was before the rise in immigration. That was before all the concern about China and trade with China. So the evidence just doesn't line up with, with a lot of these leading narratives. I think that's what's so fascinating about the economy we're in right now, because a lot of these economic trends are like Rorschach tests for people's hopes and fears and policy inclinations. And we're simultaneously living in an economy that a lot of people think is as strong or the strongest that it's ever been. And at a time when a pretty large segment of our society is calling into question the fundamental tenets of free market capitalism and the economic order that we built over more than a century now. And for those two to be competing strains, getting a lot of attention on, on both sides of the aisle at the same time in an economy where unemployment's below 4% persistently, where the stock market's doing well, consumer confidence is, is up. It's hard to, to reconcile. It's impossible to reconcile yeah. a lot of these. So let's just kind of start with the claim of best economy ever, often here thrown around. How do you go about measuring mm. an economy? And I think that this is one of the questions that I that it's prompted for me, that this broader debate is, it's very easy to ask the question of, how do you measure an economy? How, yeah. On what basis do we gauge well-being? Yeah. Uh, it's pretty hard to answer that in a satisfactory way, and it's hard to it's hard to get everyone to agree on what yes. uh, parameters we should be using. So, how do you think about? That? I think it, it is tricky. Ultimately, you know, you think the economy is a tool for making us happier, right? For fulfilling our our wants and needs. But on the other hand, our happiness is dependent on a lot of things beyond our kind of material wants and needs, and the the extent to which they're they're getting filled. So I think a lot of people look at things like you know declining happiness among women, for instance, or the increase in in drug overdoses, the rise in deaths of despair, another thing that's cited a lot, and and they they see these these bad trends and they argue they they basically believe that this reflects that the economy is somehow failing folks that it's not as strong as unemployment rate that's at a fifty year low 
would suggest. But I don't think the economy can counter all of these trends. We'll talk about social capital presumably in a little bit, where a lot of our associational life and the things that we do together with families and friends and communities have, have deteriorated. If the economy has continued to serve all of our material needs, but the, the social aspects of our lives, the community aspects of our lives have declined, that's going to show up in things like happiness trends and, and deaths of despair and things like that. Is that what you think is happening? I do, yeah. I think all of the evidence that, that I look at about how the economy is doing suggests that the rate at which we are getting richer over time has slowed a lot, but we are still getting richer over time. And we are, in fact, the richest we've ever been as a society. Not only the folks at the top are a lot richer than everybody else, and, and they've seen bigger gains than everybody else, but the middle class is richer than, than the American middle class has ever been. But would you really argue that the median, the median American male worker today versus 30 years ago, you'd argue that he is better off today? I would. If you, if you look at hourly wages, the median's not a lot better off, but it's probably about 15, 15 to 20% higher today than it was, say, in 1973. Now, that's not a reason to get up and cheer and say 15% over 50 years, but it's not lower. And, and a lot of the accounts that you hear from folks, Warren Cass, for instance, are, are that wages have declined over time. Is some of the disagreement there over cost of living and the things that are factored in to life today, housing, healthcare, education, things like that, that have clearly become much more expensive over time. So you're factoring even for those things and saying on net, workers today are better off. That's right. A, lo a lot of these debates do end up hinging on pretty technical, wonky measurements. Which stuff. deflator you're using. Exactly. The, I'm, I'm very big on using uh, the right deflator, which for the record is the personal consumption expenditures deflator. I'm glad we got that on record. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate that that measurement differences can can lead to such big differences in, in how folks interpret things. And and one of the things I've really tried to do over the course of my career and as my views have changed is to is to try not to let my priors affect the way that I go about uh, measuring things and just to figure out what's the right way to, to do it. And and when you do that, men's, men's wages have pretty clearly not fallen. Now, lower down, they've possibly fallen a little bit, although certainly not enough to say, explain why we have so much single single parenthood today than, than we used to, for instance. The employment story is, as I've said, misinterpreted quite a bit. People look at the decline in men who, who are either working or looking for work, um, but that's been happening in good years, good decades, and bad decades for 70 years now. It's happened among college graduates, and it's only happened among women since about the last 15 years or so. And again, when you look, when you actually look at the data about why these guys aren't working, that, that doesn't support this idea that it's all people who looked for work and couldn't find it and dropped out. The story about rising immigration, everything, as I said, doesn't match up with what the worst years for men actually were. There are a lot of technical arguments that, that make it tricky to, to have these debates. And even below that, I would say there, there are a, a bunch of big ways that society has, has changed that make it very difficult to interpret what's been going on. So you'll often hear among the two income trap folks, for instance, which includes Tucker Carlson these days, that two worker families today are no better off than one worker families were 50 years ago. And the problem with that is, is that if there were more folks today who were willing to live at a 1970 living standard, then we could have a lot more one worker families. Um, we've made all these choices, Americans, um, as, as the country's gotten richer, that have had trade-offs, but it's hard to see those trade-offs sometimes. And so rather than living in a world where essentially we didn't think 
married women should work. Therefore, we had to sort of top off the pay of a lot of working class guys so that they could raise a family on one income uh, and have manufacturing jobs uh, where Americans probably paid more than they would have had we had more, more trade. And so consumers were actually worse off. We've kind of moved from that world into a world where women have economic opportunities now. And so a lot more of them are choosing to work outside the home. With more two-worker families, we demand more personal services, uh, meals out instead of cooking meals at home, paying for nannies and housekeepers. That's shifted demand from, from goods, kind of basis of the manufacturing economy, to services. And it's made it more important that, we, that the goods we do buy are cheap. And over this period, like houses have gotten a lot bigger. So we've essentially just chosen to have more stuff. And the cost of having more stuff has been more harried family lives, less community investment. All of these kind of stay-at-home moms in the in the fifties and sixties were homemakers, but they were also community makers. They were they were kind of the the foundation for uh, for all the social capital building at the community level. We get this this sense that things are off because ultimately we, we can't have it all, and we don't recognize that we've essentially made this this big trade-off to have more stuff and sort of thinner and less fulfilling community lives. And then we attribute that to economics. <laughs> That's a really fascinating dynamic. And it, it leads right into the work you're doing now with the Social Capital Project. And I, I just want to kind of commend you for the fact that you've taken on brain drain, associational life, opioids and deaths of despair, the legacy of slavery as an institution, a whole host of marriage, a whole host of kind of thorny topics and topics, frankly, that are difficult to quantify and research in, in, in many cases and, and built a project out of that. But what is social capital? Let's start there. And why, why did it need a project out of the Joint Economic Committee? That's a great question. But what is social capital is is a surprisingly tricky question, even if you're, even if you're talking about like the, you know, the, the smartest 50 sociologists in the country, you'll get uh, at least 40 different answers. The basic idea with social capital is pretty straightforward. If capital is is essentially wealth that we have that helps us pursue our aims, that can be financial capital. Uh, if you've got stocks and bonds, retirement savings, that can be, if you're a business owner, physical capital, uh, the, the, the building, the, the plant, uh, the equipment that you that you use so your business can, can make money. Can include human capital, the skills that we have, the formal education, the training, or it can be social capital. And, and social capital really is about the value that our relationships provide. From just interacting with other people, we get information, we get values, we get norms, we get preferences, we get emotional support. There's just so many things that we get out of our relationships. And so the the set of relationships that anybody has can be more or less valuable depending on on the nature of them and that's that's what social capital is about when senator lee became the vice chair of the joint economic committee he had a sort of a subversive idea about what he wanted to do with his time there the joint economic committee is is has traditionally been viewed as a think tank for congress what it does varies a lot depending on who the chair happens to be. But it's typically economic stuff. It's trade, monetary policy during the Obamacare debates. It was health care. But what Senator Lee was really interested in looking at is the health of families and communities and civil society has deteriorated or not deteriorated and where it was, it was lagging versus where it was strong. Now we're in year three, I guess, of, of the project. The senator's now the chair and we're moving into a focus on, on public policies. But the senator believes, as, as I do too, that we tend to focus too much on economic problems, on economic explanations for, for other problems, 
And in part, that's because we have a lot of great measure measures for economic stuff, um, but we don't have readily available measures for some of the social stuff. And, and so the project, in some ways, has been an attempt to, to rectify that and just to get more people and more policymakers talking about um, the social aspects of, of all the challenges that we face. It seems like it's working uh, in terms of get, getting attention. I've been amazed at the output, the, the pace of it, and the, and the scope of what you guys have tackled. One of the flagship projects has been the social capital index. And uh, so talk about what went into that index, because that gets into defining social capital and measuring it in a way that uh, it kind of elevates this as an issue we should be paying attention to in the ec economic debate. Yeah. we. It's funny. We debated for a little while whether we wanted to create an index or not. Indexes can be more or less rigorous, we'll say. And so the first step was just to, to see what was out there for for measures, and then the second step was to figure out whether places that were that looked good on one measure also tended to look good on other measures, and and that turned out to absolutely be the case. So so places that have a lot of two parent families, for instance, and uh, and not a lot of divorce, also tend to be the same places that have a lot of family interaction, kids who aren't uh, on their screens all the time, and families that have that have dinners together. They're also the kind of places that have strong levels of social support, whether people feel like they have somebody they can talk to or not about their problems. They're also the places where people tend to volunteer more, where they tend to participate in community institutions, um, where there are a lot of nonprofits serving, uh, serving human needs. Uh, they tend to be places that are generous with their charitable giving, places with low violent crime, places that have more trust and confidence in things like public schools and uh, in the media. So all of these things tended to actually go together. And so we were through stats wizardry or black magic, depending on your perspective, able to create this index and assign a score to every county in the United States and every state in the United States, which can be really useful. A lot of the things that we've done, we've not really been able to fully exploit but have put all of our data up in hopes that other people will start to look at it. But it does allow you to sort of look at the correlations between places that are high or low in social capital and places that are high or low in economic mobility or, or in economic dynamism. Um, so it's hopefully a useful tool for folks. Yeah. So talk about findings that have surprised you or what do you think the most significant revelations have been? That's interesting. We did a big report on the rise in the share of births that occur to women who aren't married at the time of birth, and and, and what's behind that sort of almost in just an accounting sense, um, you know, it, it could arise because single moms are have are just having more kids than they used to. It could arise because married mothers are having fewer kids than they used to. It could arise for you know, any any number of reasons. And and what we found uh, were the two most important. The, the first was just that marriage has gone down, and so if you mechanically, if there are more people out there who are single and at risk of a single mother birth, um, then that's going to make for more single mother births. But the second one, I guess, was the one that, that we were more struck by and, and that was more surprising and in some ways maybe the more important in terms of policy, which was that shotgun marriage has plummeted for folks who don't know that term. It's a little bit of an old-fashioned term. The idea is that unmarried couple finds, finds out that they're pregnant and then they get married before the kid comes along. You know, not the greatest basis necessarily for a, for long-lasting marriage, but it used to be the norm. It used to be that, that over half of people who found themselves in this situation, uh, in fact, did get a shotgun marriage, whether or not uh, uh, the father of the bride actually wielded a weapon uh, or not. Often the weapon was implied. <laughs> That's right. And But but today, it, it's it's almost disappeared. Even among the college educated who, pro who, who have fewer shotgun weddings than folks with less education, but it's, it's plummeted across the board. So that was... 
that was one really interesting finding. I guess we've also had things that we thought were going to look bad and turned out not to. The, the two ones there have been volunteering rates are one of the sort of few indicators of social capital that haven't gotten worse over time. And that's largely because the boomers have retired and have all kinds of time on their hands is basically my, my parents. Incredible community work. And also high school students are now expected if they want to get into college to, to do volunteering and look good on their resumes. So that's not gotten worse over time, which, which I guess is a good story uh, versus some of the other ones. And also we, we looked into this claim that, that there was a loneliness epidemic that, that was new, which is related to you know, this, this increase in deaths of despair and people thinking that there's just a lot more hopelessness out there. As far as we can tell, there's just not good evidence one way or another that loneliness has, has increased at all. And it sort of makes sense. I mean, there were these, there were these classic books you know, in, the, in the 1950s, the, David Reisman's The Lonely Crowd. You know, so a lot, a, lot of, a lot of things that we think are kind of new phenomenon, you know, people have worried about them in the past. The geographic patterns were, were very interesting. The 19 of the bottom 20 states for social capital are in a contiguous group that that goes from across the south from California over to about North Carolina, I think, which is just very striking. And, and we didn't expect anything quite quite that stark. Um, but that was definitely one that, that stood out as well. So if people are going back to the original thesis, if, if people are blaming the economy for essentially an erosion in social capital and other uh, the, the trade-offs uh, that they've chosen to make in terms of the way they organize their lives. Do people in high social capital places report being more satisfied with themselves or the economy as a whole? Uh, how have we been able to measure the mm. way that people interpret uh, the world when they're in a high social capital environment? Yeah, that's a great question. Probably one that I hope some other researcher will, will take our data and, and, and look at more. We've done a lot of correlations between our index and a variety of things and have found that, for instance, there's a strong correlation between the amount of poverty in a place and, and its social capital, poor places having, having much lower levels of social capital than, um, than richer places. You know, they line up, our map lines up very well on a county by county basis with Raj Chetty's economic mobility stuff, uh, lines up very well with the economic innovation groups, um, economic dynamism uh, maps, and maps of distressed communities. Distressed communities. Yep. I was going to say vulnerable, but yeah. So there's definitely a clear correlation. Uh, establishing causation ends up being really tricky. And that's not what you're really setting out to do, right? I mean, or at least so far, you've really just been looking at the correlative. I think that's right. Yeah. We're really just trying to get more people talking and more academics like Raj Chetty who are super clever and uh, have, have more time to look into, into some of the stuff and bigger teams kind of do the next, the next stage of work to, to really establish that, that there's something causal going on. So g give us some examples of places that are really robustly high in, in social capital and uh, and what do we see there? So those tend to also occur in geographically contiguous states and and all of this all all of the fact that these things tend to happen in blocks of states that are near each other to us suggests that at root these regional differences have very long standing historical, cultural, institutional uh, roots behind them. The, the states that end up looking really good, somewhat embarrassing, Utah finished number one, the home state of my uh, of my boss. That's what this was all about, I'm yep, assuming, right? That's right. Al almost as bad, uh, Minnesota finished number two. And at the time, the chairman of the committee was was Chairman Paulson of, <laughs> uh, of Minnesota. So one, two, we got the, the chair and vice chair. Fortunately for us, we could point to 
uh, the work of other folks, including uh, Robert Putnam, who who had his own index in the 1990s and basically found found the same the same results that we did. But, but the the sort of strong social capital states tend to range uh, geographically from Utah, kind of moving over through the mountain and and sort of upper upper plains states uh, through Minnesota and Wisconsin is sort of one block, and then the second block is is northern New England, oddly enough, which is which is uh, where I'm from, which has a lot of problems, but it turns out in terms of a lot of these social indicators, uh, looks pretty good. Is um, it, are, are these places with more homogeneous conditions? Is that is that part of what's playing in here? So that could very well be part of it. It, it is empirically true that that more homogeneous places have stronger social capital. Um, we we sort of dug into looking at ethnic diversity at one point, um, and uh, the 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 more folks that you have so so sort of the, the the thing that will conform to maybe a lot of priors is to the extent that there are ethnic groups that have a lot of poverty the more african americans there are in a place for instance uh, the lower the social capital but it's also true in the data that the more american in uh, i'm sorry not american the more asian indians who are in a county the lower is the social capital asian indians um, you know have some of the highest levels of of income uh, among any any immigrant groups in the united states and, and it's a pretty long-standing finding in the social capital literature that that diversity makes 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 it tougher for social capital building. If you don't share more in common, then it's hard to to bridge those differences. Other other things that we tended to look at a lot of the the places in the north that have high social capital do tend to sort of look like they come from the old Yankee Congregationalist Puritan stock, and and there's all all sorts of interesting speculation that we did about the nature of of religions and building social capital. One reason that we think the South possibly could have lower social capital is that people tend to be evangelicals down there rather than what's often called public Protestants. The Northern Protestants tended to want to build God's kingdom on on earth. Evangelicals are much more about the individual relationship between a person and, and God. And maybe that's not a good thing for building institutions um, that, that knit communities together. But we had all kinds of crazy theories. We At one point, we were, we were chalking it all up to air conditioning, that essentially places that are hot, you go inside where you've got air conditioning and then you don't interact with the rest of the community. And that's interesting. Well, you, you've upset the Southern Baptist, uh, if I recall correctly, with uh, with some of your findings about about religion and social capital. But And I'm from the South. So, I, so a lot of your findings are of interest to me because of the regional findings around the South and the Southeast in particular. We'll talk about this in a moment. There's there's a lot of interesting threads to follow there. One, one that stands out to me that has showed up a lot in my own work on the geography of the economy is a really stark north-south divide. And we see this in your social capital maps. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear and consistent, and it's consistent across a, a wide array of measures. What is going on there? Is that what you mean by the, the air conditioning uh, divide? Yeah. So, to the extent that we spent much time trying to figure out what was going on, it was, it was sort of why, you know, why does the south look so much lower? And it's not as simple as you say the south and a lot of people think of the old Confederacy or something, but but it's this contiguous block that goes all the way over right. into the Southwest and, and over to California to some extent. So we thought about a few different things. I mentioned the sort of religious aspect of it. We thought about whether you know the South in sort of tending to adopt universal public education later, like maybe that was a marker of kind of institution building and uh, sort of an early indicator that there was sort of less cohesive community life. Uh, we did look at air conditioning. Poverty very clearly has got to be part of the story. The uh, the, the southeast and the southwest are both uh, some of the poorest parts of the country. In the north, the places that stand out, you can actually visually see them when you look at the map, are counties where there are either Native American reservations, 
or there's a county that essentially is just a prison population in Colorado. I mean, Milwaukee County in, in Wisconsin is is the other one, but there's there's sort of so few in the in the north that you mm-hmm. can you can pinpoint them on the map. And and we probably think you know that there's an element of historical discrimination that potentially can play a role. The three big groups in the South that tend to be associated with lower social capital, um, as I mentioned, are African Americans, Latinos, but also um, this group where they say their ancestry is quote American. So they, they they're not they're not Irish American. They're not. Italian-American, they just say American. And it turns out those are basically Appalachian whites. And so you have these these, these sort of really interesting, distinct groups in, in different parts of the South that tend to have low social capital. We did also do, um, as you alluded to earlier, a map that showed kind of county by county uh, this remarkable correlation between a fraction of a population in the county that was that, that were enslaved in 1860 and social capital levels today. And those maps line up on top of each other ridiculously well. Or we have maps of sort of cotton production circa 1860. And so that can't be the whole story about the entire South, but it's 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 too it lines up too well to sort of be a coincidence. It's a jarring visual. Uh, what do you think is the explanation there? I mean, ha, ha, what what because you, you're not establishing causation. You're mm-hmm. not trying to. You're not. You're clear about that. Yep. What you published, but the relationship is very strong. Yep. Uh, and so, how do you explain the finding? And what do you think we should take away from that? To me, it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, there's a lot of migration that happened between 1860 and, and today. So. Part of it could just be a story about who who left and who stayed. But at root, uh, you know, slavery was an institution that was designed to kill social capital and community. It tore families apart from each other, so husbands and wives and their kids, you know, could be sold away. Essentially, men had none of the kind of traditional male authority that at the time uh, was was the norm in uh, in white families. Certainly, community building is incredibly limited. If if essentially you're Life is picking cotton and not being able to own anything or or get an education. So to me, it's really reflective of how destructive slavery itself was. But then, and then also the things that came after slavery, the the sort of period of, of Jim Crow in in the South. Does it reveal some kind of like low social capital path dependency for places? That's that's kind of what comes to mind for me when I look at the when I look at the findings and how persistent some of these trends are over time. Yep, I think that's exactly right, and I think that's part of persistence of there being high or low social capital in different parts of the country and part of why you know the good states tend to clump together and the low social capital states tend to clump together um, that 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 there really is a path dependency to things that happened you know 200 years ago and what's happened today which if it's true either tells you we need to do a lot more in the policymaking intervention space or we should throw up our hands and <laughs> say policy is not worth much given of this architecture that we're, we're building upon. Where do you come down to this? How, how has this informed your view of the efficacy of, of policy? Yeah, I think so. I think it's very sobering for sure. As you know, uh, I come, come down the side that we need to keep trying to do things to, to expand opportunity and to increase economic mobility. But it forces us to, to sort of be realistic about the nature of rectifying inequalities. I think, you know, I think both the left and the right have had big blind spots for a long time about about expanding opportunity. And I think the big blind spot on the left is that essentially if we just throw more money at problems, that that's really all it takes. And, and we've just been too stingy in the past and and more generous public policies would, would take care of everything. I think that's way too Pollyannish. 
especially when you have intergenerational poverty, when you have concentrated geographic poverty, these things tend to generate cultural patterns that don't necessarily change as 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 people or places become become richer. And and I think the conservative blind spot for sure is to is to just want to throw up throw up our hands and uh, and say, well, what can you do? It's a bummer. You know, I think to the extent that what we want is equal opportunity, which which conservatives all often wield. In contrast to liberals who they say want equal outcomes, well, we really want equal opportunity. And it turns out that so much of how folks turn out can be traced back to being born in the wrong place or to not have been a- being able to choose your own parents. That That's not equal opportunity so long as, as that's the case. I've tried to get conservatives more interested in that, but I've also tried to get liberals less interested in in sort of shoring up middle class incomes, which which I don't feel are, are doing are doing too badly. If we're concerned about opportunity, the big gap that I found in my research is between white families and, and black families. Um, and it's and it's really striking. And and so, you know, the fact that we can't equalize opportunities between blacks and whites is is partly because the left wants to do too much that that isn't that. And it sort of dilutes public attention towards towards this other problem and and that the right can't get interested enough a lot of times to prioritize that. Yeah, I'm glad you raised this because I think this is one of the most striking things that you've written about, even outside of the Social Capital Project. You wrote a, a piece with Richard Reeves and another co-author, I believe, on the mobility gap for African-American men in particular. And you built upon some of the findings that Chetty and others have, have had uh, in this regard. And I, I just want to take a step back and, and talk about that divide because it is so stark and it does seem like one of those areas of inequality. You're generally of the mind that the jury is still out on income inequality and the yep. and the consequences of that or the, the uh, how, how much we should be concerned. But you're very much focused on the racial inequality gap and the mobility gap uh, between uh, particularly black men uh, and almost everybody else. That's where the, the real chasm seems to be. Uh, and we agree on that. And I think that's also one of, uh, unfortunately, one of the blind spots on the right in particular is on the legacy of structural issues when it comes to race in our country and, mm. and the fact that, that the, the past is not past yep. in, in that regard. And again, you see this in some of the work you're doing. So the Great Recession and the uh, recovery have essentially wiped out a lot of the gains in closing the racial wealth gap uh, between black and white families. Black home ownership just hit an all-time low or record low. There's some very sobering findings that uh, I think as, as much as I think we agree that things are generally getting better that do run counter um, to that overall trajectory. So what's the role of policy there? What, what would you like to see us doing a lot more of together? And are there areas where there's a clear opportunity for bipartisanship mm. in tackling that? Because the, because the problem seems so in, unambiguous. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think – so I think the first step would be if we could get more folks on left and the right – focused on expanding upward mobility into this economy that I think is is just the most impressive wealth creation vehicle ever and and if we could sort of focus on on that rather than well the economy's going off a cliff and uh, it's it's not helping existing middle class families why would we want to send more people to college and get them more skills to go into this economy where only the top 1% benefits. Um, so there's a lot of distraction, I think, uh, around the, the economy itself being broken. Um, and I, I would like to see left and right both focus on just moving moving people uh, uh, into having being, being able to take more uh, advantage of, of opportunities to benefit from, uh, from the economy. It's increasingly clear 
that where you grow up makes a big difference. The the Chetty research um, has has hammered that home more than anything else. And I think there's not as much awareness of the fact that blacks and whites grow up in very, very different kinds of places. When I was working at Pew, probably the most striking finding I've ever seen in, in my professional career, I think, we commissioned a report on the, the link between neighborhood poverty and, and how kids turn out. And we commissioned a report by Pat Sharkey from uh, New York University, a, a, a grad school friend of mine, actually. And he took a data set that included people who were born in the late 1950s and early 1960s and produced this chart that showed roughly that about two-thirds of black kids had grown up in neighborhood poverty that was high, so high that it was only experienced by about 5% of white kids. Mm. Um, so incredibly striking. He sort of sent us a draft and we looked at it and we're blown away. And then I thought about it, you know, the sort of skeptic, the, my inner contrarian was like, well, you know, but, but these were folks who were born, you know, the, the youngest people in, in this data were born even before the Voting Rights Act, right? And maybe it's possible that if we could look at more recent generations, things would, would surely look a lot better. And then I realized, well, there's actually this other data set um, that is very similar, but it's kids who were born in the early 1980s. We said, Pat, can you can you take a look at that data set and build the same chart and see what happens? And he said, sure, I can do that, and came back with a chart, put the two charts next to each other, and they looked almost exactly the same. Mm. So in yeah, 20, 20 some odd years or whatever after uh, the, the sort of peak of the civil rights movement, we'd made absolutely no progress. And so even when we sort of compare poor white kids to poor black kids, those kids are, are growing up in extremely different situations. And, and as the Chetty research shows, that that is profoundly important and, and probably a, an incredible, incredibly big reason behind the racial gaps that we get when these kids grow up and become adults and have good or bad uh, labor market outcomes and uh, higher or lower wages. Um, uh, so I, I, I think addressing place uh, and childhood opportunities is probably where the biggest bang for the buck would be. I, I think that's interesting because I obviously agree. I'm, I'm a, uh, a place-based uh, advocate as well. But it's been one of the more obvious blind spots, not not just blind spot. It's been intentionally sidelined for a long time, as we you know we really shouldn't think about place based interventions. We really shouldn't think about place based analysis as a measure of the economy. Hmm. As long as those national aggregate stats look good, uh, that's really what gets what drives you know broad opinion and broad policymaking. Up until uh, I think fairly recently, and the, the uh, I attribute a lot of the change in that, e even now captured among a lot of mainstream economists who were openly skeptical of, of those approaches uh, have now come around to the fact that the, the recession really did seem to reset um, mm. a lot of the conversation because the, the some of the obvious indicators like jobs and business recovery were so concentrated and have continued to be. Uh, but what they've revealed, m married to the Chetty findings, I think, uh, in large part, is just how much place matters uh, and, and that the dimensions of that are really, we're still getting our arms around it. But it's also true that place-based interventions have historically had a pretty mixed track record of success. So particularly when it comes to social capital and how do you rebuild some of that, I'm interested more broadly in is what you're finding here with the social capital project going to be a blueprint for policymaking or is it is it really showing you where the water's edge of policy hmm. uh, exists? Yeah, we're, we're sort of working that out uh, live within the team right now where – as I said, for the rest of this Congress, we'll be focused on public policy rather than just doing the, the sorts of descriptive work that, that we were doing before. And 
you know, I think I think we're hoping some of our stuff will be more practical, and uh, and I think you know Senator Lee's personal office will will take some of it and work it up into into legislative language. But in other areas, where I think we're trying to to maybe think a little bit further out things that that might not be practical today, or or things that are just sort of taking a view from thirty thousand feet and uh, and not really prescribing detailed policies, but but just general approaches that that might work. Are there policies that crowd out social capital? So in other words, are there things we should stop doing because we know they have a, a bad effect on on social capital? For sure. And 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 the, a lot of what we propose will 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 speak to that. You know, for instance, well, <laughs> for starters, there's there's a really interesting paper that showed that the introduction of crop insurance reduced religious participation, <laughs> church attendance. <laughs> So, uh, so that's kind of dramatically shows that you know when when people don't need civil society in some ways because the government in general comes in and provides something um, that they tend to invest less in in social capital. I think some of the safety net reforms that we'll propose will essentially be trying to move more people into work and 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 move away from programs discouraging marriage. But that's a place where. The more robust a safety net you provide while having a lot of important and good features, nevertheless, make it easier to act in ways that are not necessarily upward mobility promoting. If you can raise a, a child without the dad being involved, then lots of people choose to do that. Over time, if enough people do it and enough of them who are concentrated in, in the same place uh, choose to do it, then we'll stop expecting anything of men. And then and, and then what happens? We'll you know, if men aren't expected to support families, then they're not going to be as attached to the workforce um, as they would have been. And I think that's part of that's part of what we see in the decline of of men working. So I think safety net policy is is a big example where where it can crowd out stuff. More generally, you know, the I, I think a, a big concern of Senator Lee's is just that too many policy issues have become nationalized, and when so much is done by the federal government from managing retirement security and retirement savings through social security for instance or providing the bulk of funds for community development or, or or things like that then at the local level people tend to sort of their 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 social capital muscles their civil society muscles tend to just atrophy and mm-hmm. um, and in fact if we just had the federal government stopped doing a bunch of this stuff, it's an interesting question about whether people could actually self-govern uh, anymore in some sense or whether we've all just become dependent on on the federal government handling it. Some other areas we're looking at, it, crowd out very, very clearly is is a big issue though. Well, I think what's what I struggle with about your findings and just this topic in general is how much of this... So, Because the headline again is that you see economic indicators moving in the right direction uh, as a whole and that... Um, and, and, uh, you're pretty optimistic about those trend lines, at least much less pessimistic than many other people are. Um, but there's no doubt your your work here is documenting a pretty stark decline in social capital over time, and uh, and some real challenges in, uh, associated with that. But how much of that is just uh, revealed preference, mm. uh, and and how much is the effort to restore social capital fighting against the tide of people's revealed preferences? You mentioned crop insurance. I think a lot of people would look at that and say. I'll take that trade off. I'll, I'll take the I'll take the guarantee of crop insurance and the and the uh, and and the the you know the safety net that that provides in people's lives over church attendance any day of the week. Mm. Um, and so there's very much an eye of the beholder aspect to yep. what what should we even be prioritizing? How do you think about that? Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. And I, I think 
the lack of realization on the on the parts of more folks that that sort of the problem is us uh, to some extent, um, and the things that we've chosen is itself a, a real barrier to sort of addressing with the sense that uh, that that things are off. And I guess another way of thinking about or asking the question is: Do you think that? Do you think that the decline of social capital is mostly a revealed preference issue, or is it happening in spite of people's preferences? Uh, is it happening contrary to what people would want? For example, women now report they want to have more kids than they're actually having, which I think is anomalous. It's the first time that's, or it's 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 a it's a departure from what uh, surveys had traditionally reported. So that's at least one area yep. in which family formation and, and childbearing is um, is out of step with people's stated preferences, but. How, do you see the tension that I'm setting up? There? Sure. What, what, what do you think is at play? Yeah, no, I think that tension is very real, and and obviously people make choices earlier on in their lives that have repercussions later on. And maybe they maybe they thought they wanted to to get get the best job that they could, the the, the best career they could have, but find themselves at age forty or fifty, sort of thinking that they'd made a mistake. I think it's a very big problem, and it's just unclear how policy addresses that. You know how does how does policy sort of make people second guess the choices that they're making? I guess the answer from from sort of national conservatives is is that the the culture needs to change, and that even policymakers need to emphasize certain values and goals and outcomes that have become less less valued over time. That's a very different way to think about policymaking than uh, than conservatives traditionally have tended to think about it and libertarians have tended to think about it than, than progressives tend to think about it. Let's get into that. Oren and that crowd have kicked off one of the more interesting intellectual debates on the right in memory. Yep. And it's one that you've been an active participant in. Uh, you and Oren have had some some very uh, enjoyable Twitter <laughs> feuds back and forth and exchanges, I should say, back and forth. And you took that into National Review and, and actually had a, a series of, of pieces that you wrote in response to each other, which I thought was a really healthy way to elevate some of the poor arguments mm -hmm. and and disagreements. And I, th I think we'd both consider Oren a friend. He's a former colleague of yours at, at Manhattan and somebody who's motivated deeply by a lot of the same priorities that... Uh, that you share in terms of wanting to see life uh, more rich in opportunity, more stable for families, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you come at this from extraordinarily different perspectives. And Oren's perspective is ascendant right now. It's it's generating a lot of a lot of attention on the right. And you mentioned earlier Tucker Carlson. I mean, Tucker has been notably supportive of the Elizabeth Warren uh, economic nationalism and, and uh, economic patriotism arguments because they dovetail so well with. Uh, with this strain of conservatism, what are they getting wrong? Is is this starting with bad interpretation of data in your mm -hmm. view, leading to a, 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 the wrong policy prescriptions for non-existent problems, or is it we agree on some of these problems but have divergent ideas of what the solution should look like? Where, where are the deltas? Yeah, that's that's a great question, uh, and, and and I completely agree with you that that Oren's fantastic. He's one of the most important uh, thinkers that that we've got out there, and even though we've we've disagreed quite vocally on a lot of this stuff, he does incredibly important work. I think where he and and the Tucker Carlson's of the world are are, are off track is well. So it seems to me that uh, that the, the roots of national conservatism are lie in trying to figure out uh, how we got President Trump in uh, in in twenty sixteen, and the answer from the national conservatives, I think, is depending on on who you're talking to, a mix of cultural anxiety, which is kind of my own interpretation of, uh, of, of sort of what, what happened in 2015, 2016, a mix of cultural anxiety, but also uh, the national conservatives say uh, economic anxiety as well. And 
that has led a bunch of people to either question their previous views on things like trade and immigration um, or to be more vocal about views that they uh, that, that they had all along to explain the supposed economic anxieties that are that are driving what Trump voters want. And, and I think the premise is is wrong that, that I, I mean, it's not to say that nobody has economic anxieties, but the extent to which people's anxiety has risen over time um, subjectively and the extent to which economic insecurity objectively has has risen over time just can't explain what's happened over over the last the last four years or even since the Tea Party movement or even since, you know, go back to Pat Buchanan, if you want, in the early 1990s. The trends just don't line up. As I said, you know, men's men's pay, the, the worst decade was the 1980s. Since 1994, men's pay is up by something like 25%. That was from a recessionary you know, bottom uh, to now, but it, it still just doesn't line up with the national conservative story. If you look at even trade, there's a there's a great paper by a bunch of smart economists, Asimoglu and Otter, sort of the biggest names, when they find that the China shock, for instance, trade with China can account for at most, I think, 20% of the drop in manufacturing employment since 1999, which is not nothing. If you were one of that 20 percent of workers that that would have had a manufacturing job, like that's that's a big deal. But it does say that you would have had eighty percent of that drop regardless. So, I, so I, I think I think it's it's a national conservatism so far seems like an attempt to take seriously and empathize with the anxieties of Trump's base who were not getting what they wanted out of policy from previous Republican administrations. But but that gets the diagnosis wrong, and it seems stuck if the economic diagnosis goes away then you're just left with the cultural anxieties which are less attractive <laughs> i would say and which lead to very different policy proposals that's that's kind of my interpretation of what's going on with, with that movement it seems to me that the basic premise that the trade-offs have not been worth it may be shared between folks who care a lot about social capital but don't reject globalization immigration trade etc et and those on the national conservative side who who do yep. the, the again the the premise may be similar and may be right that the, the trade offs have not been worth it. It's just that one reaches to kind of the, the economic architecture of our of our society, and the other looks at these social capital indicators and says the, the problem is us. I think as you were saying earlier, that that's my best diagnosis of where the how to boil down the the divides. But I, I have to admit, I'm still coming to terms with what the exact implications would be. If you accept the premise of, of national conservatism, you really are starting to peel back some of the more fundamental aspects of how our economy is organized and in areas where there have been true economic advantages. So I think Orrin and others would say, yes, on net, the advantages are there. They're not worth it. Hmm. They're not worth it for what they've done to American families, to, to again, the median worker. I think Orrin would have a different view. He does have a different view of the kind of long-run trends for, for – uh, for a median, particularly male worker in our country, just a high school uh, diploma, and and so if you start with that premise, you know there are only a couple options for what you do, and I think right now we're in that phase of trying to get more specificity. What because mm. there's clearly a focus on let's use industrial policy, for example, now, and and let's make more intentional choices with what kind of industries we want to protect and favor, and for a lot of conservatives, that just it gets the hair standing on on the back of our necks. <laughs> Although I'm probably more open to that than than some are. I think I think I, I think almost everybody on some level is open to some version of industrial policy that we should prioritize certain industries or at least give preference to certain types of activities through the tax code or others. 
but from that premise, you can have wildly divergent hmm. um, policy agendas. So it's a fascinating debate. I, I certainly recommend folks check out uh, that exchange that you and Orrin had in National Review. I want to move back to the social safety net because in, in so many ways, the safety net is the gap filler for where social capital either has eroded or or was non-existent to begin with. You've done one of the areas in which you're contrarian is that you were, after initially, I think, being skeptical about uh, the 1990s welfare hmm. reform. You came to be a big believer that it it worked and that it had the effect it was intended to have. And more recently, I, I would note that after a long period of conservatives declaring the war on poverty lost, that uh, Republican administration's Council of Economic Advisors last year declared it a victory and used that as a jumping off point to talk about reforms to the safety net that would be encouraging and more work and institute some, some provisions that sound similar to the 1990s era reforms. So, there's a couple questions in here. One is, why do you think welfare reform worked? What does it tell us for policymaking today? And then just more broadly, do you agree with CEA about the, the war on poverty? And like, how do you think about those issues of, of, of poverty and the safety net in terms of what we should be doing? Yeah, uh, lots to unpack there. I, so, so yeah, I think in 1996, I was a twerpy, I guess, what, 23-year-old? And were these still the acorn days? They were based, yeah, basically within a year of the acorn days, I would say. And I was reading, interestingly enough, you know, sort of the, the some of the top liberal think tanks today were the top liberal think tanks then. And I was I was reading a lot from the Center on Budget Policy Priorities and Economic Policy Institute, and and I was with them, and I was with Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who thought you know, there would be millions of kids sleeping on grates in the winter, and. And my advisor, Christopher Jenks, who you know was probably one of the most formative influence on how I think about any number of things, was pretty convinced that it was going to be terrible and had written several things to that to that extent. In grad school, the first project I took on was working with him. And at, even at that point in the early 2000s, there had been a bunch of papers that essentially amounted to saying like, huh, looks like, looks like uh, single moms and their kids are actually doing a little bit better. And we were convinced that that was not right, that essentially what you were capturing with income data is that, yes, their incomes were higher, but now you had a lot of these single moms who had higher expenses. They had to pay for travel, new work clothes, childcare, and that, and that actually they were probably worse off. And if you just measured it the right way, you would find that they were worse off. And so we set about showing that with, with some data on food problems and, and uh, whether those had gotten worse over time. It turns out those had gotten better over time for single moms and their kids. They'd, they'd gotten better at a faster pace than they had gotten better for married parents and their kids. And so that was pretty influential in, in sort of you know, me crunching these numbers myself, working with the microdata, and at the end, like coming up to a conclusion that was completely the opposite of what I was expecting to find, and just got more open to the idea that we were wrong, and and that the combination of a moderate Democrat who cared a lot about welfare policy and and a Republican Congress who also cared a lot about uh, about welfare policy, that they'd happened to basically get it right. And it probably wasn't the single best way that we could have done welfare reform, but it was better than than probably any of the alternatives on offer. I hadn't I hadn't written or thought that much about it for a long time after that. I occasionally would write about it, but then there was this whole line of research on $2 a day poverty that came out a few years ago uh, as the 20th anniversary welfare reform came, which basically argued that there were all these people that were living on $2 a day, that that had risen a lot over time, and that it was because of welfare reform. And, and all three of those uh, have been shown subsequently to just be not true. And so that sort of pulled me back into, into the debate about what's happened to, to poverty trends over time and, and how much 
credit or blame can can welfare reform take for it and uh, and I do think it was actually probably the the, the best anti-poverty policy that uh, that we happened onto over the last 20 or 30 years or more. The reason that it worked, I think, and the lessons for other programs for future policy is that it essentially combined a lot of a, a, a number of carrots and sticks. So yes, we instituted time limits, we instituted work requirements. Those were things that made it less attractive to stay on welfare benefits. But also, if you weren't on yet and were contemplating whether not to work and instead get benefits, it made it really unattractive to, to get benefits. But we also used carrots as well, um, and the biggest one probably being that we expanded the earned income tax credit uh, quite a bit, and we passed the child tax credit and the refundable child tax credit in 1997. Those were rewards to make work pay so that if, in fact, your income went up but your expenses also went up, it, it sort of compensated for that as well. And then the other, I think, key ingredient that gets overlooked quite a bit is that there were exemptions for who actually had to meet this work requirement or, or, the, or the time limit that ended up being quite generous, primarily because as, as, as states' welfare rules fell, they could count those declines as as if they were people that, that had been put on work on work programs. And so, you know, something like a quarter of the of the starting population before the welfare uh, uh, rules declined, states could keep them on on welfare and not not subject them to to these requirements. Because there are, you know, there are people with profound personal challenges, mental retardation, People who have barriers in their past, incarceration, for instance, that that are going to struggle on the labor market. There are new moms. You know, we don't want to throw mothers of five months old necessarily into the labor force. So, so you need to exempt a fair number of folks. And then, I guess the, uh, an additional element of its success is that the federal reforms came on the heels of a bunch of state policy experiments. And so, in some ways, we'd already learned. The, the right mix of carrots and sticks that, that we're likely to have the best, the best outcome. So, so I've argued that moving forward, we ought to be doing more of this policy experimentation with other programs, things like SNAP and public housing, potentially Medicaid. I think Medicaid is a little bit more complicated, but, but at the very least, run some experiments, see whether there are things we could do differently that would actually improve, improve poverty and, uh, and the upward mobility of folks. I think your last question was about whether we've won the war on poverty. That that whole framing has just been head spinning. There was a time when neither liberals nor conservatives wanted wanted to say that we'd won the war on poverty. If you were a conservative and you said it, then essentially you'd you'd be uh, ratifying you know the the Great Society, uh, and nobody wanted to do that. If you were a liberal, then essentially you're saying like, all right, we don't have to do any more. We won, and liberals didn't want to do that. And it's been very strange to me. Speaker Paul Ryan used to say quite a bit that we'd lost the war on poverty pointing to poverty stats that I think were, were just not giving the right, imp the, the right impression. So that was frustrating. And that, so, but then for the CEA now under, under Trump to declare it one, which really is a, is, a, is a credit, I think, to Richard Burkhauser, who was one of the original CEA members and who's, who's done great work along these lines. I think, that's, I think that's the right conclusion in some ways in that poverty really is at an all-time low and child poverty is at an all-time low and poverty among the children of single mothers is at an all-time low. But I don't think it means we, we ought to be complacent and that we don't have to worry about how poor kids are doing moving forward. And most importantly, even though the poverty rate has gone down a lot, upward mobility uh, for kids who start at the bottom 
hasn't increased at all. And, and if you look at the Raj Chetty stuff about whether kids can exceed their parents' income, that's actually gone down quite a bit over time. So there's still a lot more we could do, but in, in, in terms of alleviating material hardship, we've actually done a pretty great job at that. And it's, and it's been, you know, I think liberals and conservatives can both take some credit for it. Liberals through some of the safety net programs that have expanded and conservatives through the, the sort of accountability that welfare reform imposed on folks. And you're not worried about So you'd like to see more of those types of uh, reforms to build upon the safety net we have now. Do you ever worried about the idea that introducing, because one of, one of the pushbacks to work requirements, for example, is that they introduce an arbitrary and unnecessary complication mm -hmm. into the lives of already complicated people who have a lot of things to, to manage. And the cost of being poor, as, as you know well, is invisible to those of us who aren't exposed to the social safety net directly in the way that poor folks are, but is can be profoundly disruptive. And so adding potential for more disruption that destabilizes uh, poor families is something that I think progressives in particular are rightly concerned about. It's something that uh, frankly concerns me too when I look at uh, some of their arguments. How do you think about that? Is there a way to institute more encouragement or accountability towards work that doesn't have the kind of unintended consequences that progressives are worried about? Yeah, it, it, it's definitely tough. And I think the way that those kinds of trade-offs are driven home to me was when I was looking at reforming the Social Security Disability Program, which when I started, I sort of thought, oh, there's got to be like a really clear, easy way of drawing a line and that the folks on this side of the line clearly deserve SSDI and the folks on this side clearly could work and ought to be working. And the more I dove into it, you know, it's just, it's just, I mean, there are folks who are not working today and who are getting SSDI who would have been working 30 years ago despite having, you know, profound back pain. It's like, was that, is that reasonable to expect people who have profound back pain to actually be working or, or was it bad that we used to do it that way and now we're a better society and, and, and these folks don't have to work. There really are trade-offs like that in, in all of our safety net programs, I think. And it's why, to me, being able to have these sorts of exemptions of, of, of people who are shielded from some of these requirements is, is so important. I think the, the other tough thing about thinking about those sorts of costs are that we don't think about the counterfactual or, or like if we maintain the status quo, there are people who are doing worse. Who would do better if we if we instituted some of these work requirements? If we'd never reformed welfare in 1996, there are some people who would not have gotten kicked off and, and entered into deeper poverty and had their lives disrupted. But there are a lot of people who would have kept receiving benefits and not working and not increasing their income and not getting work experience and not being more of a, of a role model for their kids and thinking about what, what they're going to do when they get older. So the status quo has costs too. And, and so in the end, I think we, we just need to, to experiment with different things and, and figure out, all right, how many winners are there going to be from, mm -hmm. from, from changing things? How many losers are there going to be? What are the, how big are the costs? How big are the benefits? You mentioned uh, upward mobility as being one of the things that we don't we don't see improving, even with all the success of um, tackling consumption, poverty, and and um, uh, and the effects of that. This is an area of robust debate. It's also an area where you have done some of I think the most unambiguously important work in in assessing trends in, in upward mobility in our country. And you haven't gotten all the ink that Rod Shetty has gotten, but uh, but you've done a heck of a lot to shine a light on, on the status quo and, and to push back on some of the narratives again, uh, in your kind of Twitter mythbuster in chief <laughs> role to talk about where there are and aren't 
reasons to be concerned. So maybe start off by just giving us a, a state of the union. What what does upward mobility look like in our country today? People who study mobility tend to tend to think about two different forms. Um, absolute mobility is you know just are you better off than your parents at the same age in real terms after you after you take into account the rise in the cost of living. And today, you know, my best estimates are you know that something like two thirds to three quarters of adults middle age today have more income than than their parents did at the same age. So that's good. That's much more than half. The, the Chetty team tends to highlight a number, which is 50% that are, that are better off. I think that's an underestimate for a variety of reasons. But even though I'm more optimistic there in terms of how many people have experienced upward absolute mobility, I do think it's much lower today than, than it was in previous generations. Whether we ought to be trying to maximize absolute mobility to me is, is a trickier question. You know, would you rather have been born in 1940 and grown up with that living standard but higher upward absolute mobility or would you rather have been born in say 1980 with a much much higher living standard uh, but a smaller chance that you'll actually exceed your parents income I, I think that's that's less clear people at the bottom actually have much higher upward absolute mobility than people at the top because if your parents are super poor it's easier to beat them would you rather be poor and have higher absolute mobility or rich uh, and have lower absolute mobility would you rather you know uh, be born in China, which probably has upward mobility levels that are quite a bit higher than the U.S. or born in the U.S.? So, so I think it's a mistake to focus too much on on this fact that absolute mobility has declined over time. The other way of thinking about mobility is is relative mobility, which which I've said earlier is really about your position in relative to your peers versus where your parents were relative to their peers. So if you if you start in the bottom, can you make it out of the bottom? In the U.S. today, I think it's something like 40 to 45% of, of kids who start in the bottom as kids will end up there as adults as well. It's a little bit of a Rorschach test. Conservatives say like, oh, more than half, you know, make it out of the bottom. They don't make it far. You know, most of them make it to the second fifth of income rather than the, rather than the bottom fifth. And you get the same level of, of stickiness at the top. If you're born to a rich family, there's a pretty good chance you're going to stay pretty well off uh, in adulthood yourself. Where those aggregate figures, where they really kind of obscure the real problem in my book is that whites and blacks experience very different levels of, of upward relative mobility. So first of all, talk about starting in the bottom fifth. That's about half of black kids start out in the bottom fifth. For, for, for whites, it's more like 10%. So, so right off the bat, you have this, this problem that if we're concerned about making it out of the bottom, there's just a lot more black kids in the, in starting in the bottom than white kids. Even even with that, though, the chances that if you start out in the bottom, you get out of the bottom are dramatically lower for black kids as well. And to get even more complicated, it looks like the problems are fundamentally worse for black men. If your outcome is sort of your earnings in adulthood, then about half of black men who start in the bottom fifth of family income will end up at the bottom fifth of male earnings uh, when they're adults. It's actually quite a bit better if you're a black woman. However, if your outcome is household income, which depends not just on your own earnings, but on whether you're married and, and on whether uh, your spouse uh, has high earnings or not, then black men and black women do very poorly. About half make it out of the bottom and half, half are stuck there. And, and, that, and if I recall, black men are more likely to fall out of the top than 
than white men or black women. Yep, that's exactly right. And if you're looking at white kids who start in the bottom, you know, we have really Scandinavian levels of upward mobility out of the bottom right. among whites. And so there's this really stark difference there. And then, as I mentioned earlier, like overall, it, it looks like relative mobility hasn't gotten worse over time, despite what you hear about the American dream being dead and Virginia declining. But no one's no one's found that it's gotten better you know, in any meaningful way. Over and there's time. no evidence that we're exceptional. So that this is this is that's not right. an area where the U.S. is the land of opportunity and other countries are racing to catch up. Yep, that's absolutely right. The one study that looks at absolute mobility looks at Canada and we're about the same as Canada, which I think Americans you know, never want to say, well, we're about the same as Canada. And if you look at relative mobility, then most of the research shows that we're that we have significantly less upward mobility than than most other rich countries. How do we know if we've reached the optimum level of mobility? Oh man, that's that's a great question that's been asked of me. Uh, time and again for a decade, and I never uh, have a good answer. Because people to it. often forget that if if you have relative mobility from the bottom to the top, that also means somebody's dropping. Yes. So so there's there are trade offs in, in any direction, and and I think we all assume that we want a society in which your starting point is not your destiny yep. necessarily. But I think it's very hard to pin down, which is why I ask you because I assume you have all these answers. What what, what I is have a answer. What, what's an optimal? Answer. So it's funny, for a long time, my thinking on this was really shaped by Raihan Salam, the new president of the Manhattan Institute, who, who basically used to say like a world of perfect relative mobility where, where you start out has no bearing on where you end up. That world's a world that no matter what you do for your kid, it's all for naught, <laughs> which is an, an unappealing thought and one that I, that I bought into for a while. The other way to think about it, though, so, so you, so you can achieve kind of this perfect mobility in a variety of ways, right? We could just redistribute money, and and if you started at the bottom but didn't make it to the top on your own, we could just redistribute money and get and get perfect mobility. But the other way to think about perfect mobility is that if we actually had a world which could only exist in in theory, where there really was equal opportunity for everybody, then essentially what would happen is everybody would where everybody ended up would just depend on chance, and so we would all scramble like hell to sort of be in the right place when chance comes along but we'll all have like maximized our education and and sort of done you know behaved in in the ways that are going to promote mobility in the long run and where people end up in the end it ends up being random but we've all kind of maximized our skills and our productivity and we actually have a world you know of of much stronger productivity growth than what we've got today and so you would end up with with no you would end up with perfect relative mobility, and maybe you know everything that you did for your kid was for naught. But but as a result, society as as a whole has ended up much better off because we've we've essentially created this intense world where it is driving themselves to exhaustion, which you know doesn't doesn't sound particularly appealing when you put it like that. But it, it just goes to I guess to show that it's hard to look at a number and say that's that's the right number that we want to get to without knowing how you got there. I think. I think it's just much easier to say we we want more absolute mobility. Yes. Right? And that, that that's the I think as a baseline, if those numbers were higher, I think we'd all be happy. If if relative mobility was higher, it would come with some some trade offs. And yep. I think everyone can also say we want more of that at the bottom, but but up to a certain point where it starts to either not be feasible or not make any sense. <laughs> Raj Chetty obviously gets a lot of attention for, for good reason. What do you think he is? What's what's his most important revelation in this conversation over over mobility? And he's done a lot, so I know distilling down most important may be challenging. But what do you think has changed as a result of his work in terms of national understanding? And what do you, do you think it's actually caught? Do you think policymaking has caught up with the social science on this front? 
so maybe the most important one is that he managed to somehow he did something that I think social scientists had kind of given up on, which is that he resurrected the importance of of moving to opportunity. Moving to opportunity was this policy experiment where people in several cities were randomized into different groups and they either got a housing voucher that they could only use to move to a non-poor neighborhood or they got a housing voucher where they could use anywhere or they didn't get a housing voucher at all. And so social science was excited to wait for the results and which would clearly show that when, when people moved to non-poor neighborhoods that their outcomes would be better. And And the results were incredibly disappointing. I mean, not for nothing, people reported that they were much happier living in, in, in the non-poor neighborhoods. But the kids' you know, education outcomes didn't improve. The parents' employment outcomes didn't improve. There were some mental health improvements. But in general, it was just a profoundly disappointing policy experiment. What Chetty and his team managed to do is, you know, years passed and, and, and these kids who moved became adults who show up in the income tax data, which Chetty and his team have expertly managed to get a hold of all this rich data and they were able to show that actually, even though the kids' educational outcomes weren't improving and other outcomes weren't necessarily improving, they were making more money in adulthood and they were more likely to have attended college. So incredibly important findings that we don't really understand yet, like how it is that those show up when the earlier outcomes didn't. My conclusion is we, we don't really know what we ought to be measuring in adolescence, it turns out, if it's not test scores or grades or whatever. Got to figure out what that is. So that was an incredibly important finding, I think. They've also just been very clever and persuasive at showing the importance of specific things. So their first paper found a correlation between living in a place with a lot of single parenthood and experiencing less upward mobility. And a lot of people seized on that. A lot of conservatives who think that single parenthood is this that we ought to be extremely concerned about jumped on that finding. But at the end of the day, like that's a correlation and and it could be that the places that have a lot of single parents are different in any number of ways than places that don't. And it's these other differences that are that are sort of things that, that are driving mobility. But in subsequent research, they, they did all this neat stuff. For instance, they show that among black boys, the more married fathers there are in a place, the better are the, are the outcomes for the black boys, but not for the white boys. Although the more white married fathers there are in a neighborhood, the better the outcomes for white boys, but not for black hmm. black boys. And, and the effects on black girls are much smaller as well. So it's this weirdly, it's like such a specific set of findings about who is affected and who isn't affected by, by things that make sense in, in thinking about how these mechanisms would work that I think they've made really stronger cases than, than what we've had in the past that some of these things are, are really important. One of the things I find the most interesting about that work is that it it seems to point to a kind of social contagion, mm. both positive and negative, in terms of long-term life outcomes in a whole host of areas that, again, as you said, are not self-evident from the things we typically test earlier on in life. And so who and what you're surrounded by really does matter, particularly as a child when you're the most plastic and, and, and malleable. And that this has traditionally just been an area where public policy is not even in the right game. We do very few experiments, number one, so there's less to test than I think you or I would like. And we tend to think about the economy as Lego pieces and people as Lego pieces within an economy rather than as magnets. And the, the Chetty work seems to imply that there's a magnetism between people within a place that really has these very significant but hard to quantify effects. And we're, we're clearly still working our way through the implications of that in a policy context. But is, it, but is there any obvious thing we should be doing differently in, mm. as a result of that Revelation. I mean, should is there a, a place you would start by saying, well, if you know this, you definitely want to do these two or three things? 
I guess I'd say a couple things. I, I, I think that we ought to be focusing a lot more resources and a lot more policy attention on early childhood for starters. Another interesting finding of Chetty's is that in this moving to opportunity experiment, the kids who subsequently did well had spent a lot of time, they'd moved early. If, if you move to a new neighborhood as an adolescent, in some sense, it was too late. You'd already had such formative experiences that the new place didn't, didn't affect you as much. So I think there's there ought to be a lot a lot more attention on early childhood. And there again, like the left and the right have their own unique blind spots. Most of what the left has tried, there's not a lot of great evidence for Head Start. We're actually sort of debating debating that a little bit internally on our team right now. And the idea that you can just throw more money at things, universal pre-K, yada, yada. Not a lot of evidence that that would really move the needle on on any of these unequal outcomes. And then conservatives, again, have just sort of tended to, to feel like, well, there's, there's not really a, this isn't a space that federal policy especially should should be getting into. And we know that nothing works. And so why try? But I do think that focusing more attention on early childhood would be really important. The other, the other really important question for policy is this issue you've sort of alluded to er- earlier about whether you invest in a place where disadvantaged kids are growing up to make it a more pro-opportunity area that on the one hand versus do you get the kids out of there who are likely to do well, but for being trapped in this area and move them somewhere else that's going to be a, a pro, pro-opportunity pro area. And that's a trickier question for me personally to, to answer as well. I think you probably have to do at least a little bit of both. There is a point where it probably doesn't make sense to keep pouring money into a community where people are voting with their feet. And I don't think anybody has a right to sort of stay in in a community of their choice if the jobs have all left and if a lot of other people are exercising personal responsibility by moving somewhere else where the where the jobs are. But I don't think it's as simple as sort of Kevin Williamson you know, would say of just you need to just get get the U hauls and uh, and get them out of there. The decline of economic dynamism gets a lot of attention as something that I've I've focused on in my work, and I think it's one of those areas where. Again, while I'd agree that in the macro things are getting better, there's some really concerning long-running trends that, or trends that have now appeared to become structural after potential that they were just cyclical for a while there. And this is particularly true post-recession where you see certain things just not kicking back into gear. You see startup rates remaining at historic lows. You see labor market mobility remaining pretty depressed compared to previous levels. Geographic mobility in particular way down from even just the 1990s. If place matters and people are more rooted in places good and bad than they've traditionally been, hmm. that implies something. I mean, we don't know exactly what it implies, but it implies something for policymaking. How much does that concern you, that collection of trends that uh, – and, and just what it amounts to, people being less opportunistic themselves in their own individual behavior, maybe less willing to take certain types of healthy risks that we would have taken for granted. And in spite of the mythology, for, for instance, about millennials being job-hopping, hoodie-wearing entrepreneurs, <laughs> none of that's borne out in the data. So how much does that worry you over the long term? If we could get back to mid 20th century levels of economic growth, I mean that that would maybe be the single best thing that we could do to improve human flourishing. And it's pretty clear that the decline in innovation, entrepreneurship is one of the the main reasons why we don't have anything approaching uh, that that sort of growth. From that perspective it worries me quite a bit. You have far more expertise in this area than I do. I'm interested in this research that's showing that sort of a lot of this is the aging of the boomers. Demography. And then there's, and there's demography. I mean, that's no more reassuring if you're a millennial experiencing slow growth that, oh, it was just demography. Like, no, no worries. That's still a problem. There's an, a book coming out early next year 
by an economist that Tyler Cowen just blurbed. It argues that essentially rich countries just inevitably experience less dynamism and, and slower growth. There's a part of me that is sympathetic to that argument as well. I think the demand for innovation has got to be just so much greater when everyone's using outhouses and to visit your family requires a two-week carriage ride. <laughs> When you have to take the stairs everywhere uh, instead of an elevator, when communicating with, with your family involves sending a letter that gets carried by horse across the country, and, and then you have to wait uh, for, the, for the return letter to come. Demand for innovation in those circumstances has got to just be a lot higher than, than demand for innovation today when, when we're so rich. Sometimes I think that we worry too much about, about declining innovation, but but I mean, if, if if incomes were rising at the rate that they were in the 1950s and 60s, so many- It solves of, a lot of problems. It solves a lot of problems and not just economic problems. It probably instantly makes a lot of the cultural anxieties that folks have go away. It would be better to have more innovation and, and entrepreneurship for sure. This is one of those areas where the recession actually provides an interesting, a useful line of demarcation. Because if if this was just kind of the natural course of things, then- you'd expect to see a pretty strong bounce back, say, in the startup rate yep. after the recession, after the recovery really kicks in. And you just don't see that. You yep. don't see anything close to a return to the norm. And so, there, there, at least in a couple of these indicators, seem to be areas where it's something that got broken rather than the yep. natural maturation process of an economy. I, I'm pretty compelled by the demographic explanations too, although I'm probably more concerned as a result of that, not less. Yeah, right. If you if you take the premise that innovation and dynamism are really critical to our our long term prospects as an economy, and then you find out that one of the the major factors, maybe the biggest single factor, is the thing that's hardest to solve for in policy. Hmm. Right. <laughs> then your what lever to pull becomes yeah. really hard, and this gets into conversation about immigration. There are very few ways to legislate more children, and even if you could successfully do that, it's going to be a couple decades before that shows up in the labor market. I already accepted the benefits of immigration for all kinds of cultural and economic reasons, but particularly in light of, the, and we already know that immigrants are disproportionately entrepreneurial and disproportionately innovative. I already accepted those as a premise, but especially in light of the fact that we have uh, a, a demographic challenge that we've never faced before as a country and that's going to, that we're not prepared for. Hmm. You guys have written about this a little bit about aging alone and how because of demographic trends, we need to be prepared for a universe in which there's a lot less social capital infrastructure to catch and, and to care for folks who are aging and that that's going to cost us a lot more, actually, just in terms of federal outlays, way more than we're currently anticipating. So maybe talk about that a little bit. I mean, the, the demographics question plays into social capital in a pretty profound way. It really does. The op-ed that the senator put out is highlighting a report that we did earlier in the year where we just looked at a bunch of indicators among near retirees today that really paint a pretty grim picture of the lack of social support that they're going to have in retirement, They, especially as they age into their 70s, 80s, 90s. They're less likely to live nearby their family members than, than past generations. They're less likely to attend church or, or participate in other local institutions. They're less likely to be married because of marriage and, and divorce trends. So that has a lot of personal implications for all of us as potential caregivers and, and eventually as potential old people. But it also turns out to have pretty big fiscal implications as well because all of the modeling of Medicare expenses, for instance, and, and Medicaid expenses for nursing homes tend to assume implicitly that the support that today's 70 and 80-year-olds have 
will also be the same level of support that tomorrow's will have. And that's just not going to be the case. And so very elderly people in the future are going to require a lot more institutionalized formal care than what all of the models assume. And, and so potentially the Medicare trust fund and, and, and the state of Medicaid could be in, in a lot worse shape than what we think. That's not very encouraging news given that it was already <laughs> going to be in bad shape. Well, I want to land the plane a little bit on, on social capital and mobility. We, if you had to choose to grow up in the bottom quintile of the earnings distribution or income distribution, what's the kind of place? What are the attributes of the place where you'd want to where you want to be for the best mm. life outcomes? That's a great question. So I, I think it's pretty clear you'd want to be in a place that didn't have a lot of poverty growing up among middle class and upper middle class folks. Both makes for more amenities in your local area, libraries, parks, sports leagues, schools that support sports teams and aftercare programs and things like that. But it's also going to provide very different role modeling than if you're growing up among a lot of people who aren't connected to the world of work. I think that would maybe be the most important thing that you would want. You'd probably want a lot of healthy families so that you're surrounded by examples of people who have made relationships work and and where the benefits of, of doing that are, are pretty clear. I think you'd want to you'd grow up in an area ideally where neighbors worked with each other to improve things and really did build those social capital levels as opposed to an area where everybody's afraid to sort of go outside and interact where you know the bad seeds can sort of own the streets and create a lot of problems for everybody else. I think those are probably what I would identify as, as the, the three biggest keys. I'm probably leaving something obvious out, but, but those are the ones that, that jump to mind. And social capital and upward mobility, do, do they overlap pretty tightly? They do. If you look at Raj Chetty's maps and you compare them, we actually eventually did a version of our of our index where we mapped it to commuting zones, which is kind of a super neighborhood that is what Raj Chetty is looking at. The, the overlap is very, very strong. So in general, growing up in a place that, that has a lot of social capital, way better than, than growing up in a place that doesn't. A couple exit questions for you. One would be, you work in the world of public policy and you've for masochistic reasons, chosen to be a swamp dweller who, who's involved in a lot of these really difficult and thorny policy debates. If you're a benevolent dictator for a day, you can do one thing, one high leverage, big idea thing that to you is a no-brainer, but maybe because of the, the idiosyncrasies of our legislative process may be very hard to get uh, get through anytime soon. What would that be? What's, what's the thing that you'd go to that you think is the most obvious high benefit hmm. um, policy that, that we haven't tried? Well, a few years ago, I proposed that we ought to create an office of opportunity. I forget exactly what I what I called it. I mean, I was very careful about what I called it because Richard Reeves has also called for uh, an office of opportunity. An Opportunity Nation, which is an organization my fiance used to run, has also called for an office of opportunity. My version of it essentially would have funded a slew of local experiments, primarily in, in focused on early childhood programs just to get a sense of whether we can discover things that work and that can be replicated and expanded at scale. And in doing that, I think I proposed funding it at $20 billion a year or something completely unrealistic. But essentially, it would really be a war on immobility. We would, we would throw a lot at the problem and hopefully learn a lot. And we would have to go into it expecting you know, that maybe 80% of the things we tried were disappointing and, and didn't work. But we'd hopefully discover some things that did work and uh, and that we could then encourage localities or states to to do on their own or private organizations to do on their own. There are these really interesting programs here and there. The one I try to highlight a lot is a program called Ready for K that's in San Francisco where essentially 
when you register your kid for, I guess it must be for pre-K, you can check a box and you opt into receiving text messages, Mm. three text messages a week, very basic stuff like next time you give your kid a bath, point to things that start with the letter H in the bathtub. And it's been rigorously evaluated. It turns out it measurably improves parental interaction with kids and it improves kids' reading scores before they get to school. turns out everybody has text messaging, pretty much universal. And because text messages are cheap, that once you develop the curriculum, expanding it from San Francisco to Dallas is, is quite cheap. And, and so I think we ought to just be looking for things that work and whether in the end we decide we want more federal fund, funding of those things or whether we just want to highlight them for private organizations or state and local government, we ought to just be trying a lot more than what we're doing now. That would be my one magic fix. When you're not solving America's social capital problems, what do you like to read? What what are you reading now or listening to now that you'd recommend? Oh, let's see. So the policy-related answer that I'll give is I think everyone should read Tim Carney's Alienated America. Tim's a journalist, not a social scientist, but he does just a really impressive job of explaining several complicated bodies of, of academic research, connecting a lot of dots that don't obviously connect. The book itself is essentially about how we got Trump, and and his answer is that we got Trump because there are a lot of communities that are crumbling because their their social capital is crumbling. There's an element of, of economics in his story, but at the end of the day, he shows that essentially whether it's wealthy communities like Chevy Chase that have a lot of social capital in addition to their wealth, or whether it's kind of more downscale communities like some of the Dutch reformed communities in the upper Midwest, but, but that still are rich in social capital, those are the places that seemed to not have these sort of cultural anxieties or economic anxieties that a lot of the places that overwhelmingly voted for Trump in the primaries or that switched from from President Obama to Trump, that those places tended to lack that that strong community life. So definitely the the best book related to my day job that I've that I've read in a while. The other book I'm reading because I do a lot of commuting these days because I live in real America outside the Beltway. <laughs> And then listening to a lot of audiobooks is the Robert Caro series on on uh, the, on Lyndon Lyndon B Johnson, uh, which are just incredible and fascinating, and and that throughout these massive books kind of stick with this theme of you know what if it what if a terrible person does terrible things and accomplishes incredibly beneficial things for the country. <laughs> LBJ was a terrible terrible person, but in the end we you know we we wouldn't have gotten the civil rights legislation that we got it in the late fifties and sixties. If not for him, eventually maybe we would have gotten it, but certainly not not as soon as we did. So I used to work when I worked in the Senate. I worked in Johnson's old Senate office. Oh, wow. There was a plaque outside of the door in the Russell Building, and one day Lloyd Hand, who as one of his former aides, just literally opened our door and poked his head in and said, "Hey, I just wanted to check it out." We said, "Well, who are you?" He said, "I'm Lloyd Hand," and he and we, you know, being young legislative staffers, all of whom had read <laughs> Master of the Senate, invited him in, and he just sat there for an hour and told us stories about the Johnson days. It was a real treat. And that was a book, Master of the Senate, that made me want to work in the Senate one day. And to end up in Johnson's office was interesting serendipity for my own personal journey. Well, Scott, thanks so much. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks for taking a leap on this new podcast. And I hope we can have you back. Pleasure chatting with you, John. I'll come back anytime. That concludes our first episode of The Deep Dive. I want to thank Scott Winship again for being our first guest. You can follow his work on Twitter at Swinchy. That's S-W-I-N-S-H-I. He is well worth the follow. Special thanks to Abby Gadara for helping produce the show. Be sure to tune in next week for episode two, featuring a conversation with economist and small business owner extraordinaire, Adam Ozemek. He's the chief economist at Upwork. 
We cover everything from the future of remote work to immigration policy to the congressional response to COVID-19 and even our favorite UFO conspiracy theories. Be sure to check it out. Last but not least, don't forget, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever quality podcasts are available. Until next time, thanks again for listening.